Hello, and welcome back to Kentucky History and Haunts. I thought it would be a good time to take one of my Kentucky road trips and find a good location for Halloween content. So I got online and I came across a tour of the Murder Mansion in Bowling Green. And I happened to have the book, The Cemetery Road Murders, sitting on my shelf. I hadn't read it yet. So I very quickly read the book, uh, which was written by Wes Switek. And then I went down to Bowling Green to take the tour and meet the author, who I should have asked how to pronounce his last name, and I didn't. So Wes, I'm sorry if I said your last name wrong. Um, But a lot of what I tell you today will be based on his book. And I also went through a ton of newspaper articles to get more photos and just verify details. And also to see how this case was presented to the public as it went on. It's all just, it's very wild. It takes twists and turns. And really, at the end of this story, you're going to go, uh, what? So I really want to hear what you all think after you listen. And this will be a multiple part series. This is the story of the Cemetery Road Murders. Bowling Green is in south-central Kentucky. It's 60 miles north of Nashville. In the 1850s, residents raised a million dollars to win the bid for a railroad which would make Bowling Green a stop on the L&N. That was a big deal. Um, That part of the railroad was finished in 1859, and it now meant that passengers could make a trip from Louisville to Nashville, or vice versa, in 10 hours versus the 30 or more it took by stagecoach. So that really helped Bowling Green grow. Now, during the Civil War, a lot of Bowling Green residents were pro-Union, but there were plenty of Confederate sympathizers And the Confederacy needed to set up its own government in Kentucky, and obviously it would have to be in the southern part of the state. And they chose Bowling Green because of the railroad, because of its role as a transportation hub. Um, They didn't last very long. By February 1862, they had to retreat. On their way out, they burned down the railroad station, two bridges across the Barren River, and some of the biggest homes in the town. I'll be talking about Civil War history in this area in much greater detail in my upcoming episode on Octagon Hall, which I also visited on this trip, and it was fascinating. So, in 1906, uh, the Western Kentucky State Teachers College was chartered in Bowling Green, and that would turn into Western Kentucky University. And things went generally well for the town as far as economic growth and industry, and of course the school is growing. Then the Great Depression hits. Um, And you know, a smaller town like Bowling Green, it's maybe not quite as catastrophic, but it's still hard. Uh, It's tough times. And during that time, some women turned to prostitution to make enough money to survive. And that brings us to Pauline Tabor. Now, I don't want to talk too much about Pauline because I have this big, beautiful, illustrated book all about her, and she'll have her own episode at some point. But her role in this time period does help kind of set the stage for this story. So Pauline Tabor was a divorcee with two young children, and she was selling beauty products door to door, and she was thinking, you know, there's got to be something better I could be doing. 
And so she goes to Tennessee, she learns the ropes of running a brothel from a madam, and then she came back to Bowling Green and implemented that business model, and it went very well. Uh, Her brothel became known as Pauline's Place. It was down the hill from Western on Clay Street. Um, As many of the body houses of the day were, it was very nondescript on the outside, but extravagant and full of cool antiques on the inside. And many people will tell you that this was the longest-running brothel in U.S. history. I don't know that for sure, but it's clear she did a great job. She was good at what she did. Um, She retired in the late 1960s. So um, she is a big figure from Bowling Green. The other thing you should know about this area is that there are lots of caves there, right? In the early 1800s, people were so excited to find all these caves that were rich with saltpeter. So they had their slaves go down in the caves and harvest it and send it to the DuPont Chemical Company up north to make gunpowder. So that helped economically. Um, the other thing that helped was nearby uh, Mammoth Cave National Park was established, and that was in 1941. And of course, That helped with tourism, and it really stimulated the local economy. Uh, My mom's side of the family is mostly from southern Kentucky. Uh, I went to visit some of them, some of my ancestors in uh, Cave City and Horse Cave. I went to see their graves. So that was really cool. I love this part of the state. I, I think it's so beautiful, and it has such an interesting history. Um, but another small town around that area is Glasgow. Uh, it's 40 miles east of Bowling Green. Our main character in this story is from Glasgow. Harry Edward Kilgore was born in February of 1923. He mostly went by his middle name, so we're going to call him Edward Kilgore for the rest of this episode. The Kilgores were a prominent Glasgow family. Edward's grandfather, also Edward, was a druggist. The family owned the local paper, the Glasgow Times, from 1868 to 1881. His grandfather, Edward, met a woman named Annie in 1870, and they got married and had their honeymoon at the Galt House in Louisville. Edward Sr. and his wife Annie had two daughters and four sons. One of the sons was Reed Shaw Kilgore, born in 1882. Reed was a mailman. He married Ella Dallas Martin, and they had a daughter, also named Ella. And then a decade later, they had a son, Edward Jr. Edward's dad, Reed, was pretty proud of his job as a mailman. Uh, It was a rural area, so it was pretty tough work, and it didn't pay very well, but it was an honest living. But a couple of days after Edward was born, his dad, Reed, was in an accident while on his mail buggy, and the initial report said he was injured but not significantly, but his buggy was totaled, so it was a bad wreck, and apparently his injuries were more serious than people originally thought because he was very unhealthy after that and unable to go back to work. So in 1925, when Edward's not even two yet, Reed Kilgore was so distraught over not being able to work and being injured that he hanged himself at 42 years old. 
Reed's mom, Ella, remarried a man named Millard Sharp, who would become Edward's stepdad. That marriage, however, was short-lived. Edward, despite this trauma, appeared to be a pretty normal kid. He went to school in Glasgow. He played baseball on the weekends with friends. When it got dark, they'd all have to go home, and the Kilgores lived on the outskirts of town, two blocks from the train depot. And on his way home at night, Edward would stop at this small hill where his father was buried, and he would sit there at Reed's grave and try to communicate with him. Edward grew up to be pretty big. He was six feet tall, 150 pounds, blue eyes, uh, longer hair than maybe was typical of the time period, and he was described as, quote, wistful-eyed, brilliant, moody, and eccentric. He graduated from high school in 1941, and he went to L.A. We don't know exactly why. Um, that's where he went. And here's what he said about his time in Los Angeles. Quote, I recall walking the streets, and I was just walking alone in the bright daylight and the high buildings around me and people, people everywhere. And sometimes I seem to have a tendency to want to destroy a person. No particular reason. It was a vague feeling and far away and something that just walks along the side of you. And that was the first time I was conscious of that. It's a strange quote, isn't it? Uh, speaking so matter-of-factly about wanting to randomly destroy a person. Uh, little red flag number one. So Edward didn't last long out west. He was back home by 1942, and he enlisted in the U.S. Naval Reserve. He became a radio technician, second class, and went to a training station outside of Chicago. But he was discharged after only five weeks, and he was specifically not recommended for re-enlistment. So people who knew him said that this discharge really didn't sit well with him, it affected him mentally. He really seemed to want to be a part of the war effort, like so many young men at the onset of World War II, and to be kind of removed from that, it, it hurt him. And so he took a job in Louisville at the Curtis Wright factory building cargo planes. By the end of the war, obviously, his job had become obsolete, and so again, he went home. Um, in 1945, he enrolled at what was still then at Western Kentucky State Teachers College. He planned to study physics with a minor in mathematics, and he did okay there. Uh, he worked as an assistant physics lab instructor for a while. He joined the Western Players Theater Group. But he was still doing that thing where he would go to cemeteries at night, and... It wasn't just to visit his dead father. He went to a lot of cemeteries. There was Pioneer and Fairview, uh, plus family plots and little church graveyards, and the St. Joseph Cemetery, which dated back to the 1860s. The police actually found him more than once and had to escort him away from the cemeteries in the middle of the night. Um... In 1947, Edward started dating a girl named Ruth, Ruth McKinney. She was a, quote, pretty dark-haired 18-year-old freshman at Western who had no shortage of suitors. She came from a farm family, and they lived about a mile outside of Bowling Green on Cemetery Road. 
Initially, Edward was actually interested in Ruth's older sister, Lena, but Lena wasn't interested in Edward, and she introduced Edward to Ruth to get him to move on from her, basically, and, and pay attention to her younger sister. So, the McKinney girls. Their family lives in a fairy, fairly rural area outside the town on Cemetery Road. There's another family that also lives on this road, the Martins. There's Dr. Charles Benjamin Martin, the 82-year-old patriarch of the family, Dr. Martin's 71-year-old wife, Martha Martin, and they have a 52-year-old son, Stonewall Jackson Martin. His nickname was Stoney, and he was their only child. So it's this family of adults, and they live in a big, and I mean big, colonial brick home. And over the years, the Martins just kept acquiring land and kept adding on to their already pretty extravagant home. And so their estate was an impressive one on Cemetery Road. Um, it sat on 325 acres. The Martins had moved to Bowling Green in 1907. Dr. Martin and his brother, also named Stonewall, practiced medicine in town for a while in the Helm Hotel, and then Dr. Martin retired to be a gentleman farmer in 1908. Uh, they owned a ton of ground, though, not just on this uh, cemetery road. They had a 240-acre farm in another part of town and a 500-acre farm in Allen County. And the son, Stoney, helped the elder Martins manage all of this property. Stoney was known as a bit of a recluse. He wasn't social at all. He was never out and about. And he had a, a physical, he had an ailment. He had like a hunchback. And so everyone was a little surprised when it was announced that Stoney Martin was engaged to Ruth McKinney. Of course, everyone knew their families were neighbors, so they at least knew each other, but it was a bit of a surprise when they were married in June of 1948. But Dr. and Mrs. Martin couldn't have been happier about it. You know, their 50-year-old son, a recluse, is marrying this young, beautiful, college-educated girl from a good family. So they went off on their honeymoon, Stoney and Ruth. They go cross-country. And while they're gone, Stoney's parents, Dr. and Mrs. Martin, hired a painter to come in and redo the house on Cemetery Road, because when they got back, the newlyweds would be living there with them. Stoney and Ruth went to Arkansas, they stopped in Oklahoma, they went to Texas, and then they got a call, and they were told that they needed to get home as soon as possible. Around 5 a.m. on the morning of June 30, 1948, a man came by the Martin house to drop off a check for milk produced by the Martin's cows. Nobody appeared to be up yet. It was very early. So he left the check on top of a refrigerator on the back porch. Some tenant farmers employed by the Martins arrived around 6.30 for work that day, and 14-year-old Elsie Ray Hood went up to the house to get some metal pails that he and his dad, J.H. Hood, used to milk the cows. 
And when he went up to the house, he noticed that the pail Mrs. Martin usually used to milk her favorite cow for the family hadn't been touched that morning. There was still no sign that the Martins were awake. Elsie's younger sisters were sent up to the front of the house to collect their portion of the check that had been dropped off. And they came back to the rest of the family to report they couldn't find the money or the Martins. Now, it was approaching 7 a.m., well after the Martins would typically wake up. And that's when the painter showed up, the one they hired to freshen up the house for the newlyweds. He went in the back door and into the kitchen to get a key to the smokehouse where he'd been keeping his supplies. He was frustrated when he opened the smokehouse because Dr. Martin said he would get him a can of white paint, and it wasn't there. So... On the way back up to the house to get with Dr. Martin about this paint, he ran into J.H. Hood, the tenant farmer. And the two men start to look at each other like, what is going on here? Um, So the painter, his name was Joe Emerson, started walking through the first floor of the house. And he noticed that Dr. Martin's work outfit was laid out on the front stairs, which was apparently normal. Um, So nothing was amiss there. But he got to the end of the hall, the Martin's bedroom, and it was still dark, and the curtains were closed. And he saw Dr. Martin on the floor, next to the bed, on his back, with his knees drawn up. Meanwhile, it looked like Martha was laying face down, and she was still in the bed. And then he saw the blood. Emerson checked for a a pulse in both of them, and neither of them appeared to still be alive. They were both cold to the touch. So Emerson got the heck out of there, and he went to tell Mr. Hood that the Martins were dead. And their first thought was, okay, what if the killer is still around here? So they both ran out of the house and to the road, and that's when Hood ran into a neighbor, uh, Herschel Bright. So... Together, the three of them all go back up to the house, and Emerson used the phone to call the police, and this is still just after 7 a.m. It's early in the morning. But Bowling Green police were quick to the scene. So we've got Police Chief Mural Waddle, Warren County Sheriff Bodley Davenport, and a bunch of other officers. They all entered through the front door, and the Martins' bedroom was immediately on their left. Because of the level of gore at the scene, the amount of blood, the responders first assumed that the Martins had been hacked to death with an axe. And this was just a common thing back then because you had to chop wood to heat your house, right? So there was always an axe around, and axe murders were actually pretty common. Uh, but this was a, it was a messy scene. Uh, Dr. Martin had severe lacerations on his head, He also had a bloody, dark blue ribbon clenched in his right fist. The coroner, Chester Basham, showed up with another local doctor, John Blackburn, and together they did a preliminary examination and then had the bodies removed to the local funeral home for proper autopsies. And that's where they would later find the bullet wounds. They were from a fairly large caliber gun. Dr. Martin was shot in his left cheek, through the right side of his neck, and through his right temple. Three shots, 
close range, and Martha had only been shot once in the back of the head. Dr. Martin also had some scratches on his body, plus contusions and abrasions on his head, and they were in full rigor, so the coroner put time of death around 1 or 2 a.m. that morning. Uh, Once they opened the windows, they were able to see small objects shining in the bed where Mrs. Martin was found. They looked like granules of sand. There was broken glass on the bedroom floor near where Dr. Martin was found, and the front door latch was broken off, indicating forced entry. And once they removed it, they realized there was a bullet hole in it. So they followed the trajectory of that bullet and found a 32 caliber casing in a baseboard on the front stairway. But that was the only shell they found, so the attacker must have picked up the other four. Of course, small town, news travels fast. So before long, a crowd had formed out front. Uh, It had been reported on the radio by 8.05 that morning. And the Warren County attorney, William Natcher, called the head of the brand new Kentucky State Police Department and said, hey, uh, we're gonna need some help out here. So they sent two more investigators and a fingerprint expert from Frankfurt. So this is, it's turning into a huge scene. And then the brother shows up, uh, Stonewall Sr., Dr. Martin's brother. And he started telling the crowd of reporters that his son had been at the house yesterday Um, But that was really it. He didn't have any information about after that afternoon. So there weren't a ton of other people for reporters or investigators to talk to because it was such an isolated street. Um, But they did find a few people that may have witnessed something. One woman said she thought she heard a woman shouting around 1.30 a.m., but she fell back asleep and didn't look into it. A farmer nearby said he heard a dog barking around 1 a.m. and then a car starting. And then another neighbor said they were driving on Cemetery Road around 1 a.m. and they saw a sedan parked in a field near the Martin house. Now remember, the Hoods were tenant farmers, so they must have lived nearby too, somewhere on the property. And the teenage boy, Elsie, told police that he thought he maybe heard a woman scream at some point in the night, but he didn't hear any gunshots. In fact, no one reported hearing any gunshots. Uh, But all these interviews did pretty much confirm that whatever happened, happened around 1 a.m. So, right off the bat, investigators are looking around at the size of this house and the gorgeous antiques inside and thinking, you know, this was a burglary gone wrong. But the brother, Stonewall, said, no, I don't think so. Everybody knows that my brother uses checks for everything. He doesn't keep cash at the house. Um, The one check that was dropped off that morning was still there. Nothing was missing. Nothing appeared to have been taken. There were watches and fine jewelry out in plain sight. Mrs. Martin still had on her wedding ring. They quickly realized this wasn't a robbery at all. So then, what was it? Why would someone do this? And then there was that piece of string in Dr. Martin's hand. Police believed that was from a hat band, like a, like a fedora, 
and they figured he had maybe pulled it off of his assailant's hat while trying to defend himself. So police searched trash cans and uh, looked for that hat missing a band. They didn't find anything. Uh, They also initially thought this crime must have been committed by someone not from the town. It, It must have been an outsider. So the public was put on alert to look out for a, quote, suspicious-looking stranger. As the morning turned to afternoon, police finally conducted an interview with someone who reminded them about another possible motive for these brutal murders. Quote, there's a boy mighty worked up over Stonewall Martin and Ruth McKinney getting married. Sheriff Bodley Davenport thought about that and decided, you know what, that does seem like a good avenue to explore. So he went to talk to Ruth's father, E.D. McKinney, to ask him which boys in her life might be upset about Ruth getting married. And E.D. McKinney gave him a list of 17 men. Just love it. Most of these gentlemen were students at Western. They were easy to track down and easy to clear. But there were two men on that list of 17 that police couldn't immediately locate. One of the guys was 27-year-old David Sanderson. When they went to Sanderson's employer, he told police that the kid had been brooding recently over an ex who had chosen another man. Bingo. So they went to this guy's house, and it looked like he had taken off in a hurry. This looked like a good lead. But they also couldn't rule out the other person they hadn't yet spoken to, and that was 25-year-old Harry Edward Kilgore. Edward Kilgore, whose father died when he was a toddler, who got discharged after five weeks in the military, and who wanders through cemeteries alone at night. While they're zoning in on Sanderson, investigators went back to Mr. McKinney, Ruth's dad, and asked him, do we still need to look into this Kilgore kid? And Mr. McKinney said, yeah, you do. They dated briefly, but he keeps showing up at our house waiting for them to come back from their honeymoon. That's strange behavior. So one night while Edward Kilgore was at the McKinney's, he could faintly see lights on at the Martin home, and he said, oh, maybe they got home early. I guess this didn't seem too strange to the McKinney's at the time. Uh, They thought Ruth and Edward had remained friends after their breakup, and he was just acting friendly. Um, But other people noticed a change in Edward. He was acting strangely. He'd lost a bunch of weight, Um, His mom asked him to go see a doctor, and he refused. So Edward Kilgore's landlady told police that Edward left early the night before, the night of the murder, and he hadn't been back since. Um, She let them into his room. It was neat and tidy. There were two fedoras, but neither of them were missing a band. Uh, But there were a couple of odd things. There was a large supply of canned V8 juice, and there was a brand new hatchet. So the landlady told police to go look for Edward at his mother's home in Glasgow. Meanwhile, their Sanderson lead turned into a dead end. Sanderson was in Nashville. Uh, They could confirm this. He had been making up with his girlfriend. He'd actually proposed to her that night, and they'd gone out to celebrate. There were tons of witnesses. Airtight alibi. 
So, full steam ahead investigating Edward Kilgore. So a deputy sheriff, Charles Ashworth, and Bowling Green police officer Curtis Henderson went to Edward's mother's house in Glasgow, and they asked her if Edward was home. And she told them that he wasn't, and that she didn't know where he was. But then there was a guy in a car backing out of the driveway as she's telling the police this. And what do you know? It's Edward Kilgore. While Edward assured Sheriff Ashworth he knew nothing about the murders, Officer Henderson stepped away to search the Oldsmobile Edward was driving. He came back with two flashlights, one with a dent and what appeared to be dried matted blood on it. It was also missing some glass. There were skeleton keys, a woman's purse, a knife, boots, a thermos top, wire, and... <clears throat> four 32 caliber shells. So they took Edward Kilgore back to Bowling Green, and he told them he was with a friend that night. He was with a music professor at Western. That was his alibi. He was there with his friend all night until dawn, which is when he drove home to his mom's house. So they took Edward Kilgore to Warren County Attorney William Natcher's office, and crowds were gathering. This was such a big deal and everyone everybody wanted to know who this kid was and at this point Kilgore was not cooperating he was done talking quote he had been described to me over the telephone as a brilliant boy very peculiar and very moody in the presence of the chief of police and sheriff and one or two other officers this boy simply sat in a chair and looked at me and answered no questions that's what Natcher said about Kilgore when he first sat down with them. So Natcher knew he had to get everybody else out of the room. He wanted to talk to Kilgore alone. And he basically told Edward, you know, if you did this, I'm going to find out. That will happen. And it will turn out better for you if you just tell me right now. And he did. Kilgore confessed immediately. He said, Mr. Natcher... I killed Dr. and Mrs. Martin. So early that same afternoon, he signed a full confession, and it was announced on the radio at 12.35. But this is really just the beginning of the story. Pictures of Kilgore were distributed in newspapers throughout the country, along with photos a photographer had taken of the crime scene. The Courier-Journal stationed reporters and photographers in Bowling Green. I mean, it was a media sensation. And the wild thing about this four-page detailed confession he wrote was that it was made public. So I'm not going to read all of it because it's really long, but I do want to read some excerpts of it. So he wrote, I threw the gun in the river. I had a little bag of sand that I tossed into the river. I didn't want to hurt them, so I had that along to strike the blow upon their head. I think I hit Mr. Martin in the head with a bag of sand while he was in bed. And then he writes, It sure is painful to get these words out. He said, I had a piece of ribbon with me, and I thought I would tie them up with it, but he would not be still. Mrs. Martin lay back on the bed, and she would be still, but he would not be still. He started fighting with me. I wanted to tie him up in the scuffle, but he started yelling, so my mind just left me. 
I remember shooting, and I shot a lot. All of a sudden, I realized what I had done. He also wrote in this confession, I had been so disappointed all my life with relations with girls. I knew that Stoney Martin and Ruth McKinney, who were married last week, were gone. I had been going with Ruth McKinney for several months. I do not think it was quite a year. The Martins had all that money, and I know that the boy must have enticed Ruth to marry him. She is a beautiful girl. I loved her. I seemed to be confused. It all ties in. This goes back so far. Um, so all this evidence in the confession matched up, or all the evidence matched up with his confession nicely. It all fell in line. His prints matched the ones on the hat band at the crime scene. The shoe prints matched his shoes. His timeline fit perfectly. So he sat there in jail waiting for his arraignment, and he did have some visitors, some family, uh, mom and sister, some curious acquaintances. Um, And while Kilgore sat in that jail, a professional diver from Louisville was hired to search the Barren River for the gun. But even without it, Natcher felt like he had a good case. The problem was, wouldn't Kilgore make a good candidate for an insanity plea? In Kentucky in 1948, a defendant, quote, must be found because of a mental deficiency to not know the difference between right and wrong or understand the consequences of his or her actions. Edward Kilgore's mom hired a very good attorney, Rhodes Kirby Myers, and I saw his grave too. His nickname was the Casanova of Bowling Green. He was fluent in Latin and Greek, he was charismatic, and he was a showman. The courtroom was his stage. He defended Rosemary Clooney once, as well as Bing Crosby. Uh, He was also involved with the Henry Denhart case, which I will definitely be covering at some point. Myers ran for governor in 1943, but lost in the primary. But he was a senator at the time he was defending Edward Kilgore. And the first thing Myers did, right off the bat, was ask the judge, G.D. Milliken, to have a psych exam ordered for his client, Edward. Kilgore had already been examined by three different doctors at the jail, but I don't think any of them were psychiatrists, so Myers wanted this psychiatric evaluation. And the judge agreed. He actually took it a step further and ordered a whole team of psychiatrists from Vanderbilt to come in and evaluate Edward. So there were a total of seven, and they each interviewed him, and they put together a five-page report. So they said, quote, he was friendly and cooperative and answered questions readily and showed throughout the examination a facial expression that on only one occasion showed any spontaneity or enthusiasm. He frequently assumed odd postures. For example, he would look upward with his eyes closed, his hands held in a semi-cupped fashion. On one occasion when discussing the girl in question, he maintained a long silence as if he might be experiencing some type of ecstasy. He had difficulty in understanding why girls would not show him affection, stating that he had frequently asked them what was wrong with his personality. 
He showed throughout the examination a tendency to disregard the gravity of his position, seemed to be more concerned with the fact that he had been unable to get along with people, especially girls, seemed almost completely unaware of the fact that he was in an extremely serious situation. Edward told them he'd always had trouble socializing. Even as a little kid, he didn't really have any close friends, male or female. He didn't kiss a girl until he was 23. And he told them he'd never been interested in sex with women. He just wanted their affection. He wanted to hold them or be close to them. The doctors suspected that Kilgore was being deceptive about his sexuality. They got the impression that he might be gay. And of course, homosexuality was still seen as a mental disorder in the 1940s, so this could further um, solidify his insanity plea. We know better today, but back then, it would help his case. Maybe most importantly, though, the doctors noted that his actions during the Martin murders showed an inability to judge reality. They said there was no logic in what he did, no indication that he was aware of his actions. They flat out stated that they believed he did not possess sufficient mind and mental capacity to know the difference between right and wrong, or to realize the consequences of his acts. So these doctors recommended that he be transferred to some kind of mental treatment facility, and they diagnosed him as schizophrenic. So, by that Friday morning, Stoney and Ruth were finally back from their honeymoon, and they made funeral arrangements for the very next day. So, the Martins were buried at Fairview Cemetery, and their family plot is at the front, along Cemetery Road. July 6th, 1948, three days after the burial, Kilgore was arraigned, and the courtroom was filled with a crowd pushing 300 people. It was on the second floor of the Warren County Courthouse, built in 1868. The plea was entered not guilty by reason of insanity. They did not request bond. And during all of this, there's still no murder weapon. They're still looking for that gun. So a $100 reward is offered to anyone who comes up with it. Miss Pauline Tabor also spent time in the courts that summer, being fined and raided after Natcher obtained a search warrant to enter her Clay Street establishment. So uh, Rhodes Myers represented her in court too. Now, visitors who went to see Kilgore that summer noticed a change in his appearance, as well as his behavior. And some people speculated that he was just practicing for the performance that would be his day in court. Many people believed that Myers was coaching him on how to act insane. Edward Kilgore was indicted on September 7, 1948. Myers petitioned the court to bar any other legal proceedings against Kilgore, pending a determination of his sanity. And the judge agreed, meaning the entire case against Kilgore rested on the outcome of this sanity hearing. In that pending battle, Natcher and the prosecution had a secret weapon. So after the seven doctors released their report on Edward, Commonwealth Attorney Wilcock met with Stoney Martin and his lawyer, Top Orendorf. 
They basically told Stoney that this report is a real roadblock to their case. I mean, this is a problem. And the only way they could fight this report from these doctors would be to come in with a very high profile psychiatrist to contradict their findings. Someone like Dr. Manfred Guttmacher. Uh, Guttmacher was the president of the forensic psychiatry section of the American Medical Association. He was chief medical examiner for the Maryland Supreme Court. This guy could sway a jury. The fee for this doctor's testimony was $500 a day plus travel expenses. And that's in 1948 money. So this guy was very expensive. Luckily, the Martins were super rich and could afford it. So attorney Wilcock called this guy up and the doctor agreed to come meet in person to discuss the Kilgore case. And after that, he commented, quote, look, from what you tell me, the boy can well be completely sane, but I'll never know until I examine him. So it was actually the day before that September indictment that Dr. Guttmacher interviewed Kilgore, and he did so for several hours. And he didn't release any of his findings publicly because he was saving it for his testimony. But he told his client Stoney in private that there was nothing wrong with Edward Kilgore. He was just putting on a show. The sanity hearing would take three days, and the presiding judge for this one was Warren County Circuit Judge John Barrett Rhodes. Um, so in this case, 12 jurors would be deciding whether or not Edward Kilgore was insane at the time that he murdered Dr. and Mrs. Martin, and if he would face trial for their murder. The defense was made up of five local lawyers hired by Kilgore's mother. Stoney Martin hired four additional lawyers to aid the prosecutors. So, I mean, everybody was fully lawyered up. During jury selection, Kilgore sat there and did physics problems out of a textbook. Then he'd switch to a comic book. So he was paying no attention, and he had long, messy hair and a beard. So he was really playing it up. And the courthouse was packed the entire three days. There were over 400 people in the room to watch the sanity hearing play out. This is important to remember later. Kilgore's mother testified that Edward was of unsound mind and that he'd never been like other boys. She told the court that as a teenager, he preferred the company of younger kids and that any mental issue he may have had worsened after his discharge from the Navy. She also told the court that other people in her family had mental illnesses as well, an aunt, a cousin, and of course a father who committed suicide. At one point, she flat out said her son was very crazy. One doctor said Kilgore had gotten worse since he first interviewed him in July. A neighbor testified that she'd seen Edward go outside during an electrical storm and bark at the lightning. She also said Kilgore had told her that he communicated with the dead, his father specifically, at night at the cemetery. And he'd tried to conduct a seance, but it didn't work. His wardrobe also became a point of interest. One person testified that he wore women's hairpins in his hair. Another said she saw him wearing a pink robe in the middle of the day. 
they also entered as evidence several letters written to various people by Kilgore that were truly bizarre. Letters to girls, letters to his mom. Um, so they were making a good case for his insanity. But then the police officers who arrested him were called to testify. And they all said that on the day of his arrest, all of his speech and behavior were that of a normal, sane person. So on the third day of the trial, Dr. Gutermach took the stand, and he said this was all an act. Kilgore was definitely sane. He does not have schizophrenia. And these opinions were backed by three more doctors called by the prosecution. So closing arguments were given, and it was time for the jury to deliberate. And this was not a quick decision. They took two hours, they came out to get clarification from the judge, then they went back in, they came out again. Finally, they came to a decision, and they announced that they found Edward Kilgore mentally fit to stand trial for the murders of Dr. and Mrs. Martin. But it would take a year to get Kilgore back in the courtroom, and prosecutors were going for the death penalty. The trial was set to start on September 19, 1949, and Kilgore was clean-cut this time. Fresh shave, new clothes, neat and tidy. Again, huge crowds of curious locals and reporters filled the courtroom. There weren't 12 jurors, but 24, 12 for each murder. Before the trial began, the Commonwealth's attorney Wilcock had resigned, and Top Orendorf, who used to be one of the Martins' personal lawyers, was appointed the position. So he would lead the prosecution alongside William Natcher. But before they got started, Edward's attorney, Rhodes Myers, asked for a recess to meet with Orendorf and Edward privately. And Myers asked Orendorf to tell Edward Kilgore what he thought the outcome of this trial would be. To which Orendorf responded, He's going to get the death chair. The jury's already made up their minds. And I guess this statement had the desired effect, because Kilgore kind of broke down and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's so much more to this story than what I've admitted to the police. I was not alone at the Martin house that night. That brings us to the end of part one of the Cemetery Road Murders. Stay tuned for part two, coming very soon.